0: Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, the words to this passage are available for you in the bulletin that you received uh, when you arrived. And so I encourage you, whatever fashion it may take, through the Bible, through Uh, the bulletin through an app on your phone to make sure to have God's Word open before you as we uh, dive into it this morning. Um, I brought my water up here, so I should be good to go now. Uh, And I'm I'm reminded of a time where I was preaching in another setting, and my throat just got really dry all of a sudden and started to go out. And it it was to the point where I literally could not speak I I would try to talk and just no sound. And I I guess a lot of folks in the church thought I was getting really emotional uh, in the moment. And I was like, no, I'm just, I need need water. (laughs) So, uh, anyway, I hope hope we can avoid one of those moments because they do serve to derail uh, sermons. Uh, But may God bless our time in His Word this morning. Would you pray with me now uh, that He would um, minister to us, that He would would, uh, mercifully meet us? through His Word as we open it up. God, we ask that You would bless the preaching of Your Word. We ask that You would humble humble us under the authority of Your Word. We ask, Lord, that You would give us the good gift of conviction and correction where necessary, and meet us in comfort where necessary and needed as well. Lord, show us Christ. Show us in the in the, in the, in the un, unending, unrelenting pressures that life can throw at us, that the world hits us with six, six and a half, even seven days a week. Show us a Savior who calls us to himself and invites us to live in him. So, Lord, we pray this in His name. Amen. As I watched the snow fall and the temperatures plummet this week, my mind did what maybe some of yours did. It went back to summers of old. It went back to, mine particularly, went back to summers of my youth growing up in Northwest Arkansas. I remember those days full of baseball, full of swimming hanging out with friends, staying up too late, playing video games and watching movies. And uh, in many ways, I enjoyed what was a normal, all-American childhood and youth. And and summers were the highlights of those days. One particular highlight of my summers was uh, in the community that I lived in, there was a sizable Italian population. And there was uh, uh, the the Italian population uh, put on what was called the grape festival. And so it was this normal, as you might imagine it, fair or carnival uh, that would come to town. And it would come every summer, uh, like the last week before school would resume. And so uh, myself and my friends, we would always go to the grape festival each year. And we would have $10 or $20 in our pocket to ride rides and to eat fried food and to uh, play games, and and we felt like we were on top of the world. And I remember that the festival was marked by many rides that, in in hindsight, I'm surprised that I didn't die on them. And uh, not just because of the rides, but because of how foolish my friends and I were on the rides. Uh, You know, you had the the Gravitron thing that spun around and you're supposed to lay up against the wall. Well, we were the ones that would try to walk out to the middle and inevitably we get thrown back into the wall or into one another. Now, for as fun as all of that was, there was kind of an unspoken uh, excitement about the Great Festival that my friends and I enjoyed. And that was the fact that with the summer concluding, and this was, might be hard for you to imagine, but this was before the days of social media. This was before the days of uh, everybody over the age of seven having a cell phone, so being able to text message one another. There were a lot of people that we went to school with that we just wouldn't see over the course of the summer. So particularly, there were a lot of girls that we went to school with that we did not see over the course of summer. So with the anticipation of running into some of the girls that we'd be seeing going back to school, my friends and I, we would, when we were going to the Great Festival, we would make sure that, that we were uh, dressed in, in the clothes we wanted to be wearing, and, and, and we'd probably look at ourselves in the mirror before we went out the door, about 350 times. Uh, we would bathe ourselves in an ungodly amount of cheap cologne, and we were going out the door with a, with, with, with a strange combination of terrible insecurity and irrational bravado that can only be found in a 12-year-old boy. And it was odd that the girls never seemed very excited to see us. I had another thought this week as I watched the snowfall and worked over Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 12, and that is that disastrously poor self-awareness is not reserved for 12-year-old boys trying to impress girls. As my friends and I would swagger through the, fair, through the carnival, eating funnel cakes and drinking soda, imagining that we were Johnny Depp. Those interactions with the girls we would see from school would just show that we were out of our depth. What if you and I easily find ourselves out of our depth as well, imagining on ourselves one thing, and yet the testimony of Scripture would show us something else? Look with me in Matthew 7 at how Jesus speaks to those who would follow after Him, and particularly See how he informs how we understand ourselves and our relationship with God and with others. Follow along as I read Matthew 7, 1 through 12. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. This is God's word. May He write its truths upon our hearts. This is an interesting passage of Scripture. As we wrap up Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it seems like like either Jesus or Matthew recording these is kind of bringing in all these extra loose thoughts that he can and dumping them all in the basket, and it seems as if they, they scatter all about. You talk about throwing pearls before pigs and then doing to others what you would want done unto yourself, and then in the middle of that it's, hey, and, uh, be bold in taking your prayers before God, and you look at it and you say, what in the world is Jesus getting at? What is a cohesive unifying thought? For all that he's showing us. And I think what Jesus is showing us is the following. Obedience to Christ compels us to carefully understand ourselves, our God, and how this shapes our responsibility towards others. Let me repeat that. Obedience to Christ compels us to carefully understand ourselves, our God, and how this leads us to understand our responsibility towards others. First, in verses 1 through 6, let's look at our responsibility to understand ourselves. Now, Jesus, in, in these verses, uh, is only, is only uh, adding yet one more chapter or one more instance to what we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, where he is taking a sledgehammer to much of the conventional wisdom that we would think it means to, to follow after Jesus or, or to serve God. And so, as Jesus continues this work of demolition and reconstruction on what we understand it means to know and follow after him, he gets to two verses, particularly verse 1 of Matthew 7, that many of us would probably find to be quite familiar. You read it, judge not that you be not judged. How many of us have thought of this verse when somebody was getting onto our case? If you feel somebody is starting to impose reasonable expectations on them, you hit them with, ju- with, with Matthew 7 1. Judge not that you be not judged. If somebody says something about, hey, you know, your anger, it's getting a little out of hand. Judge not that you be not judged. If somebody starts talking about a coworker who's really grating on you, and you tell them, hey, you know, calm down with the bad attitude towards them. Nope. Judge not that you be not judged. You're not in my shoes. I don't know about you, but for many parts of my life, I've been really good at playing this verse. The problem is, for many parts of my life, I've been really good at misunderstanding this verse. See, Jesus says in verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged, but then verse 2 comes in, and he says, For with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So what Jesus begins to show us here in verse 2 is that the, the, the point of telling us to judge not, that we not be judged, is not in a manner in order for us to be able to tell people to get off our backs, but actually in a manner in which we can understand our responsibility to not get on the backs of other people. So here's, what, here's what's going on. In verse 2 where he says, um, with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. It's likely that he's alluding to a uh, uh, familiar teaching uh, of, of uh, of rabbis and of Jewish leaders of the day, where they would judge people, they, they would teach people uh, about, about a measure of mercy or a measure of, judge, uh, or a measure of judgment. And so Jesus is basically saying, hey, you better not be crying out for a measure of mercy from God or from others, while you're also adding a measure of judgment to those that you are interacting with. As verse 5 would tell us, Jesus says it quite, quite frankly, don't be hypocrites, And so this verse is not about telling people how to stay off of our backs, but Jesus is actually confronting us with what we need to understand about ourselves. So the question we must first ask ourselves is, how easy is it for us to get out our magnifying glass to judge the faults of others, when in fact obedience to Christ would tell us before you get out your magnifying glass to look at others, perhaps get a mirror and look at yourself? Jesus illustrates this stunning lack of self-awareness with the imagery of a speck in a brother's eye while you have a log in your own eye. He says in verses 3 through 5, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And now we must register in verses both both 3 and 4, Jesus references our brother, or, or uh, and then in verse four, how can you say to your brother? And so he's, he's 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 alluding to these familial relationships. And so there's one thing to understand here that he's speaking to us, particularly in the context of relationships with one another in the church. And so Jesus is saying that that that. Our relationships with one another in the people of God must be guarded by, uh, by caution against an arrogance and, and a, a judgmentalism that can bring harm and can bring hurt to the whole community of faith. You know, it struck me this week as I thought about it, rarely will a church, be, uh, w- w- rarely will a church have need for people to see the fault in others. A more pressing need that many churches face is for people willing to see their own faults. Has it ever struck you that unwillingness to humble yourself is harmful to those around you who would be trying to follow Christ beside you? Where's your heart towards a brother or sister who is of a different generation than you, and maybe just marches to a different beat than you? Where's your heart towards someone who has a different personality makeup from you? Maybe you're more laid back. Maybe they're more hard-charging. You don't understand why they get worked up so much. They don't understand why you seemingly don't get worked up about anything. How quick are you to accuse someone else, even in your own mind? And how quick are you to justify yourself before someone, even in your own mind? Jesus recognizes that the fires of our fellowship together in the church would burn all the more brightly if we erred on the side, not of a measurement of judgment, but a measurement of mercy. What if our disposition towards one another and our interpersonal relationships together and our serving the Lord together and our working together in in all sorts of life in the church together, whether it be in Bible studies, whether it be in discipling relationships, whether it be in, 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 in worship ministry, whether it be in any part of life and fellowship together, in church business meetings, church members meetings. Whatever it may be, what if our default posture was one of willingness and even desire to give those who might confuse us or or cause us consternation? What if our default position was to err on the side of giving the benefit of the doubt? See, what Jesus is showing us here is that where we think this passage might be like in, in the Monopoly game of life, we might think it tell us to, might, might give us an advance to go and collect $200, it actually Jesus is holding up before us a card that says, hey, the tax bill on your properties is due. How quick are you to notice the speck in another's eye before you notice the log in your own? How quick are you to try? Are you to try to throw somebody down on the operating table to perform surgery on them when you are the one who is in need of life-saving action? Now, make no mistake. Here's the here's here's one thing to understand about this passage, and why I realized that verse one is not just a a a blanket statement to tell people to get off our backs. In one sense, judgment of one another in the church family is part of our life together. Not a judgment in a sense where we are casting stones at one another, but in a sense where we are walking alongside of one another, seeking to help each other as we follow Christ. Verse 1 is not a blanket statement because verse 5 tells us, Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus doesn't need swaggering disciples beating up one another. He needs humble disciples, all helping one another to follow a crucified Savior. But then in this context of helping us to understand our relationships with one another and our relationships in the church and our relationships even outside the walls of the church, he comes in with a strange illustration in verse 6. He says, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What is Jesus getting at here? Well, dogs and pigs were familiar, unclean, gross, disgusting animals in Jesus' day. And so pearls and that which is holy were things that were precious, were things that were, 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 were desirable, were things that someone would hold close. And so Jesus is saying, in, in, in this sense, he's saying on, on another side of the spectrum, I think what he's saying in verses 1 through 6 is he's giving us kind of two ends of the coin to be aware of as we relate to and interact with one another. One is making sure to, to, to take the log out of our own eye to avoid hypocrisy, and the other is don't get boiled down or don't get bogged down in, in endless disputes. Don't get bogged down with those whose language they speak is only vitriol and hatred. Don't get bogged down with those who are simply looking for dispute and disagreement and debate but not looking for discussion and understanding and growth. So Jesus is giving us a word here, not to write people off from hearing the message of Christ. Just in our relationships with one another, in our relationships with those who must hear the message of Christ outside our walls, don't get bogged down with those who aren't seeking good faith effort to learn more of the gospel. Be willing to move on to those who must hear the gospel. So Jesus is strangely starting to triangulate our understanding of our relationships with those outside of ourselves. And ultimately, I think the big picture that he's getting at is that we have this tricky dance of navigating relationships and navigating difficult people and even the difficulty of our own hearts as we seek to live in a world where conflict is high, where where misunderstanding is rampant, and where confusion reigns supreme. How many of us, if, if I asked you to raise your hand, would say relationships in life are easy? None of us would. Jesus is showing us that here. And he's calling us to a position, to a posture of humility and a posture of gentleness. But beautifully, the one area where we have to grow in our self-awareness is not just understanding ourselves in relationships with others, but now he speaks to us a word about growing in self-awareness about not having to worry about the difficulty of any kind of relationship with God. Where the relationships with those around us might be difficult and might perplex us. He, He shows us our relationship with God is one of Unmerited blessing and unmerited favor. And the very kindness and love of God poured out upon us. So not only do we understand ourselves, but now in verses 7 through 11, we understand ourselves and our God. As we think about understanding our relationships with those around us, Jesus now gracefully reminds us of the unhindered access that we have to freely go before God our Father. And as I read verses 7 through 11, Listen to this. Isn't it a generous mercy that the correction of our Lord for ourselves and our relationship with God that correction comes via comfort in His love? Jesus models for us what He's just said in verses one to five. He doesn't say, "You idiots! You don't understand yourselves and God." No, he comes alongside of them and says, Hey, let me remind you of the kindness and the gentleness of God your Father. Follow along as I read. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So we see in these verses two aspects of how Jesus helps us to understand our relationship with God. First, Jesus pushes us towards consistency, towards frequency, towards an unrelenting heart, an unrelenting nature in us taking our needs and taking our lives and taking our situations and our, 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 our uh, circumstances that bog us down to continually taking these before God. Ask, seek, knock. And so I wonder, I'm not basing this entirely on Scripture, but I wonder if some of the reasons why we get, uh, why, why we face such consternation with relationships with others around us can partially be rooted in the fact that we, we so, so rarely take these concerns that we have with others around us before God. Is the disappointment that you have with that person who's not meeting your expectations, if you were given truth sermons, is it actually a disappointment with God and a way in which He's working in your life and how that person perhaps isn't meeting what you want them to be? Before beating one another over the head, let's run to God in prayer and ask Him for His mercy. And so Jesus shows us that we must be frequent, that we must be um, unrelenting in going before God in prayer. And He says, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. But not only does He call us to consistency in going towards Him, but He shows us the consistency of God in His heart towards us. a mercy of God. It is a mercy of God that our petitions before Him, no matter how incomplete, no matter how feeble, our prayers before God are not met with cynical eye rolls, but with a compassionate heart. Think about that. The next time you are stumbling over your words in prayer... The next time you find yourself in a perplexing situation or perplexing relationship that you don't quite know how to process or what to do with it, and you feel like no matter how you try to voice any kind of prayer to God, it's just not going to come out right. I've had times in my life where I was praying to God and I said, God, I don't even know how to speak what my heart is feeling. It's times like that when verses like this are profound in their power. God does not meet our petitions with cynical eye rolls, but with a compassionate heart. God uses this, Jesus uses this illustration of a father with his own son. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven good give good things to those who ask him? I phrase you who are evil, he's not calling his audience just terrible, evil, disgusting human beings, he's using this as an example of no matter how good of a father you might be, no matter how good of a father you might have had, no matter how good of a father you might aspire to be, in your human sinful nature there are going to be incompletions, there are going to be uh, 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 errors, there are going to be ways in which you simply in your sinfulness fall short. Though love may abound throughout your days, there will be times where you in your sinfulness do not measure up. And Jesus says, God the Father never doesn't measure up. He will give you exactly what you need. He will give you good things to those who ask Him. Now you might read this and think, okay, well, time for me to take my wish list before God. And eyeing that new model of car... Ten-degree mornings sure make me wish I had that vacation home. I could use a promotion at work. I could use fill-in-the-blank. I could use getting out of this illness that cripples me, the sickness that I cannot shake, this condition that the doctors tell me I'll have for the rest of my life. All right, Lord, here I am ask and you will find, seek and, or ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. Here I am, Lord. But that's not how it works, is it? How often has it felt to you as if the prayers of your heart went unanswered? Even in the darkest storms of your life, Maybe you didn't feel like God wasn't there. Maybe you did feel like he wasn't there. But no matter what it was, you can come to times when you asked, where you sought, where you knocked, and the answer was not what you wanted it to be. Well, either that disproves the Bible, or we must carefully understand what Jesus is saying in this passage. Jesus has previously, in the Sermon on the Mount, specifically taught us how to pray with the Lord's Prayer. So you can go back and look in Matthew chapter 6 if you want to. So we have to see that, okay, if we consider the Lord's Prayer, and now we consider this, these two aren't going to be contradictory to one another. So Jesus is not just giving us a, a red carpet unfurled for us to take all of our wildest dreams before God. No, what Jesus is doing here is He's speaking in a manner in which He wants us to understand the heart of God to His people. And so part of our self-awareness as followers of Christ is, A, understanding our propensity towards judgment, uh, toward, towards unfair, unkind, ungracious judgment towards others. And so have this self-awareness of ourselves, but now a part of our self-awareness is not having an idea of God as one who is distant from us, but one who is near to us and one who delights in the prayers and the communion of His people. So, a call to self-awareness is not only a call to recognize that we are far more prone to legalism than we may imagine, or far more prone to placing standards on others than we, would, than we would want placed on ourselves, but a call to self-awareness is recognizing that we are far more loved than we perhaps realize much of the time. And so, with this self-awareness of the love of our good Father and our responsibility to one another in the faith… It is then that we come to the final point, not only understanding ourselves and our God, but understanding now in verse 12, our responsibility to others. Just a note, if you're looking at this in your Bible and you see the little headings there, like the golden rule, asking it will be given and judging others, sometimes those are really helpful and sometimes I don't really understand what they're doing. This is one of those instances where I don't really understand what the editors who came in and compiled our Bibles uh, uh, realized what they were doing. I think the golden rule in verse 12 fits entirely with verses one through 11, and not 13 and on. I think 13 and on actually begins a new section, which we'll actually look at next week as we conclude the Sermon on the Mount, uh, about what it means about uh, entering following Christ on the narrow way, but that'll be next week. But Jesus says, verse 12, don't take my word for it, though take verse 12." He says, "So." So that so is building upon something that was just said. So knowing yourself, knowing your God, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. How do you do that? How do you have this attitude? Well, Jesus has just shown us we are guided towards this perspective by knowing ourselves all the more. And you see that line, Do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets where his audience has been asking him, Jesus, what does it mean to follow you? What does it mean to know you as this one who professes that he has been sent by God himself? How do you fulfill our Old Testament Scriptures? What do we make of what the Old Testament says about you and what it means to serve you and what you are saying to us now? And Jesus brings all of our Bibles together now with its calling upon our lives and calls us to understand that service to God is not found simply in our actions, but in the hearts behind those actions. For he says to us here, you who profess to follow God in your actions, your hearts towards your brothers in judgment, your heart towards your God, distant and detached. These reveal that your heart is not set upon God. And so the way in which you will start to understand where your heart is is And where your heart must go is to say to do unto others what you would want them to do to you. And so we say, okay, well, Lord, how do I meet others with mercy when my heart wants judgment? And how do I know this love of God towards me? How can I be self-aware in this? that I may not be swaggering around like a 12-year-old boy at the carnival thinking he's impressing people, only bringing embarrassment upon himself. How do I do that? Well, the thing about the heart is there's not a button you press. There's no magic fix you do. I think what we do is we set our eyes upon and we give consideration to the one who is teaching us these things. We give consideration to him, we give thought, and we we meditate deeply upon Christ himself, who he had no log in his eye, and yet he came and he died for us who have logs abundant in our eyes. We set our minds on Christ himself, who came as the expression of the love of God the Father to us, To the point where everything that we might ask for, everything that we might seek, everything that we might knock on the door and desire from God, we find it fully and freely and completely in Jesus Christ Himself. Do you want to know God? Do you want to commune with God? Do you want to feel as if and to know that He loves you and that He is with you and that He will guide you and that He will mercifully be your companion, and your um, Lord every step of the way. This is not found in trying to climb a magical ladder to get to him. This is found in recognizing that Christ has come to us. Our hearts towards one another, our hearts towards those outside of this building, our hearts towards God himself will be fueled by our awareness of the God who has come to us. And not just awareness intellectually, but awareness as ones who know that even when we were not asking, when we were not seeking, when we were not knocking, Christ came and entered our world, and He has come by the power of His Spirit, and those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are Christians, He has entered into our lives. His Spirit indwells our souls that we may worship Him, that we may grow in this self-awareness that He spurs us on towards, and that we may be a witness of His goodness and His grace to those around us. Does the hurdle in trusting God in this manner, does the hurdle in understanding your life and your circumstances seem far too great? If so, that is the point, because Christ invites us to see that He Himself is the means by which we know ourselves. We know ourselves and our need for Him by looking at the cross and what He has done for us. And we, are, we know ourselves and our hope in Him by considering the resurrection and the promise of eternal life with Him. And we know ourselves and the strength that we have for whatever He calls us to in this day, even if it means abandoning a judgmental spirit Even if it means trusting God the Father when darkness surrounds me. Because we know that Christ does not just call us to this and then walk away. But Christ in his ascended state, even now, stands before God the Father. Interceding for you and for me. That we may cast our concerns and our cares upon him. So brothers and sisters, this call that we would do to others, wish they would do to us is born first of all in Christ doing for us what we could not do ourselves, and what we in our sinfulness are too blinded to even ask of him. So let us look to him, and in that we, we may know ourselves all the better and all the more clearly. The carnival has many things that can throw you off, that can confuse you and disorient you. One of which that I remember also was a hall of mirrors, you know, that you walk through and distorts your body, makes you think you're really tall, makes you think you're really wide, makes you think you look many different ways. Brothers and sisters, Christ invites us to exit out of the hall of mirrors of this life and enter into a true understanding of ourselves where we may look to him and we may live. Let us pray together. Lord, obedience to Christ compels us to carefully understand ourselves and you. So, Lord, help us Lead us to understand what it means to know Christ through His work on our behalf. And I pray, Lord, that if any in here do not know You, would they look to You in faith even now? And may they look to You and live. And Lord, we pray that You would draw hearts to Yourself. We pray that You would strengthen our hearts to trust You and be willing to ask the hard questions of where our heart is towards one another, knowing that where our heart is towards one another reveals in many ways where our heart is towards you. And so, Lord, would you free us from being a a people and, and free us from hearts where hypocrisy might rear its ugly head, but free us to be a people who reflect a Savior who gave his life for those of us who have many logs in our eyes when he did not even have one speck in his. And so, Lord, make us this kind of people for your praise and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.